Ladies, gentlemen, welcome to a brand new episode of Human Energy Field. Thank you very much for tuning in. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for giving us your time, whether you are driving, working, painting, relaxing, reading, or you're just kind of chilling about with your feet up, kicking back, taking it easy. In which case, me and Jamie both envy you quite a lot. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of A Human Energy Field. This episode, we want to talk to you about some more of the answers that we received from our Instagram questions, um, specifically with regards to character death and high fatality in games. And then later on in the episode, um, Jamie's got a book hidden away behind him, which I'm dying to hear about. So I'm going to be rushing through the next hour and a half to get up to the uh, section where we cover Osprey Publishing's Sigil and Shadow. But until then, we really love hearing from you guys. We really love the responses we get when we put out polls and questions asking about what you want to discuss. And with that in mind, we will get into more of your um, sought-after answers by discussing, in general, high-fatality games and player character death. Um, specifically, someone also mentioned Morkborg as kind of a one game within this this genre of quote-unquote high-fatality games. But I think it would pay to look at the kind of concepts and the ideas and the themes on a more general scale rather than any particular one game. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree because um, it would be so easy to drill down into the kind of design and aesthetics of one game when really what we what we want to do is the wider topic of fatality and character death in, in role-playing games in general. And I think that's going to appeal to more people um, and I think whatever we say could still be applied to those and Morkborg doesn't come out of a um, you know out of a void. It is it's something that's come along because of some of the games. And I'm sure we'll discuss them. Um, so I think it would be it would be too much too narrow focus to talk just about you know spend an hour talking about Morkborg. I'm not even sure I could do that. But you know um, yeah we're gonna we're gonna cast the net nice and wide as is our preferred method of recording here at Human Energy Field. So again, thank you very much for your time. I think, to be honest, there's a lot of different ways we could approach this, and there's a lot of different kind of angles we could take to begin looking at character death from. And it's kind of hard to pin down where you'd actually start with death, if you like. Okay, so I think it's going to be useful um, to first, let's, uh, let's assume, as we're going to discuss, we're going to discuss regular games where you are playing characters who are alive. Um, and I think that's got to be a basic concept <laughs> to begin with. So that that. And also where death is not just a change in metaphysics or a change in form, where death is essentially the end of the character. I think that's really where we need to draw a line, talking about character death in RPGs. We can talk about death and beyond in games of Wraith and all that sort of stuff differently. But what we're talking about is um, how to view and how to handle and how to approach both as a player and a GM the concept of your character coming to an end. Yeah, good, good caveat to begin with, I think. Leave your Wraith the Oblivion books on the shelf for the time being. Um, but do keep them in mind for future episodes. I think the idea of um, a character coming to an end and no longer existing, ceasing to be, kicking the bucket, is something that a lot of players can kind of struggle with, struggle to grasp. Um, you know, it, it, in, uh, it, there, is, there is a lot of opportunity for it to feel 
either unsatisfying or like missed opportunities and i think we're here to kind of give you guys a bit of a bit of reassurance that it doesn't always have to be a bad thing if your player character dies and there can be sometimes a lot of good things that can come out of the end of a character's journey even if that journey itself was was not particularly satisfying in the ways you'd expected it to be yeah and i think also it it might it's definitely going to be worth looking at um the, the genesis of the hobby and in the way that characters are in the kind of the core games at the beginning of, of role-playing and also how where character death sits in kind of most modern um big games as well i think that's going to give us a, a good kind of viewpoint as to to how where where we've come with it and where we are with it is in in terms of you know the industry and the player base oh so attitudes towards player character death have changed along with the industry over the past few decades is that what you're saying i i would yeah i would certainly think so and i would i would believe so um and i and i think definitely the, the player base's view of character death has, has probably changed um pretty much hmm. okay so come on then you, you've dropped yourself in it now we start us back at the genesis of things give us a bit of a rundown from the old days Okay, so I mean, uh, as everybody, uh, <laughs> thanks. Did you say Grognard? Um, <laughs> so, so um, same thing, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we we look back to let's just take D and D for example, um, and the concept of starting at a very low level uh, where you can do very little, and throughout play, and what really is the only way to gain experience is time spent at the table. Um, your character will improve and numerically ascend through the numbers to level two, three, four, et cetera, et cetera, um, and become more powerful and some could say more enjoyable because of that. You can do more things, you have access to more weapons, more powers, spells, et cetera, et cetera. So I think when we look at that, um, it's very easy to die at those low levels. And I think that was always quite common. Um, you know, only having a handful of hit points and, you know, especially being like a, a magic user at first level and having, you know, four hit points and no armor, very easy to die. Um, and part of the design, mechanical design process in, in Dungeons and Dragons back then was to balance the power levels of the players at different levels due to their survivability. So you would have a fighter was much more capable than a wizard at level one. But then by the time you start hitting level five, six, seven, the wizard begins to outclass the fighter because they've reached the amount of hit points to be survivable. Their spells become comparatively more powerful than what the damage the warrior can put out at similar levels. Um, so you had this kind of almost um, this balancing act within the, the experience point design system that allowed different classes to be powerful at different times. Um, and it was almost the payoff, you know, if your wizard survived that long, then you deserve to be good. Um, you know, you deserve to be really powerful at that point. Now, as we've come further and further through time, um, and various editions of D&D, we began to balance this out. But before we move on to more editions, I think you've got to look at the perception of character death, where the amount of time you've spent at the table represents how good your character is. And you're going to be more upset uh, naturally or, or kind of more cautious about your character dying at ninth, 10th, 11th level. Because what you've got to remember of the mentality of GMs and gamers back then was you began back at level one, you know, or maybe you jumped in at like, you know, at half the level of the existing characters. There was a lot of different discussion of where to start new players, but the default was really to allow them to start at level one because you'd rattle through a level one adventurer traveling around with a bunch of level nines. Yes, you'd have to watch out for the first few adventures, but because of the amount of XP, you would rattle up a level 
every couple of sessions and you you wouldn't catch up straight away but you you'd, you'd be back in the running pretty soon but i think in order to look at character death um you are going to be quite upset with a high level character because you have then what you've lost in real terms is the amount of time and energy time spent at the table that you put into that character and then you go back and you're not being rewarded for the time spent at the table you're back to you are you are set back at zero uh, whereas the rest of the people who survive are ultimately more powerful than you and will continue to be so until they die so death being the real balancing factor at, at that point the leveling factor um and then dnd changes and i'm not going to go through every edition bam, bang by the time we get to about fourth we really start seeing true balance across everything a fighter or a wizard or whatever was all as powerful at level one two three whatever and all leveled up together and we get to dnt fifth now um where all starting characters are reasonably like they've got a good level of survivability um they're pretty well balanced um but they they don't share the homogeny that they do in fourth they still have their own identities um but they're all pretty survivable and to kind of finish this this now and then idea to, that kicks us off we're at a point now where with D&D it's actually very hard to mechanically it's very hard to lose your character um not only are you designed to be quite tough in combat you know any class really um especially if the GM is balancing the encounters correctly but not only that but when you lose your hit points and you go into death saving throws I mean it's very hard for you to um fully die if other members of your party are willing to spend a round stabilizing you um, just mechanically, you know, 50-50 rolls, you get three chances, and if one of you play, one of your own party isn't going to come over and save you, then I guess that's a separate issue in itself. But the fact that it can very easily save you from death and bring you back to zero hit points. Uh, and also, we, you know, we live in a world where the kind of magic, the resurrection magic and raised dead magic and all that kind of stuff is a lot more accessible in modern D&D than it ever was in the earlier versions. Um, character death doesn't hold the same panic i think for modern D players than it did for the original players and i'm using D as a um as an example because it's the most well-known and probably arguably the most well-played um, role-playing game in the world that's been around the longest so that's what we're using for the basis of the comparison i like that it makes sense i do really like the idea of a group of level nine or level 10 characters one of them perishes and then the player has to create a level one character who kind of catches up with the experienced um, player group. I just I like to think what sort of dynamics would arise between the characters when one is level one and the other is level ten. I really like that idea. Yeah, and I think it's it's something that was often discussed and and it's probably still discussed in a lot of role playing magazines. And you know where do you start that? But it's amazing how because of the kind of creatures you would fight and the treasure you would gain at those kind of, kind of ninth tenth level, the lower level character would very quickly after a few sessions be up to third fourth fifth and they'd be leveling up every session until they hit maybe you know six or seven and there weren't a few a few levels behind so i think you probably got this dog's body mentality to the new character this kind of you know people who carries your bags and have to hide in the corner and and you have to kind of protect but then that's balanced out fairly quickly because the way the experience is dished out in that game and and the players will will pretty pretty soon get to a more even footing i love that really cool that would be quite a unique uh, group dynamic to explore i think something like that <clears throat> um what about in other such games of a similar era 
things like Call of Cthulhu or Traveller, do we encounter the same kind of approach towards character death? Really interesting is we see a very, very different approach to character death in both of those games. Mm. So um, Traveller, for instance, and a lot of old school players will will know this as a a little uh, interesting role-playing nugget of information. You can actually die during character creation. Um, because, <laughs> what? Yeah, you can because you you start your character at kind of the base um, age, whether it's sixteen or whatever, and you kind of roll through their lives, developing their skills and backgrounds, and you kind of put them through various careers in order to kind of end up with your character as they are at the start of the game. And if your character is enrolled in certain you know, militaristic backgrounds, um, you roll to see what happens to them every four years, and there is a possibility that they will die. And that character becomes basically dead, and you have to start the character generation sequence again from scratch. Um, so that that's quite funny, and a lot of people find that funny. But um, and also Call of Cthulhu, um, especially in its early incarnations, it was a lot more geared towards the fact that your investigator or your player character in that game would suffer insanity or death very frequently at the hands of the the powers of the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, but I think that was firmly understood by the kind of players and the game itself because of the kind of material it was based on, that winning against these powers was probably unlikely. Um, the best you could do is maybe survive. and it, Because it doesn't have that heroic feel that D&D has. So yes, it, Call of Cthulhu and Traveller, but both being very early, I think have very different approaches to character death. I think um, it's, much more, it's a much bigger thing in D&D. And Call of Cthulhu treats it a lot more frivolously, and that, and that's we get on from there and through the decades how other games can approach that death. Right, right. So maybe we should subtitle this episode "Character Death in Heroic Fantasy Games" or something. Maybe. Yeah, I think because if you're playing a game like uh, if you're an old school Call of Cthulhu player, then you know you are kind of you're impressed if your character makes it through <laughs> the adventure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you're not upset if your character dies because there is an expectation there before you go into the game. But I think for bog-standard, heroic, D&D-style role-playing games, and that, that also extends into you know your Cyberpunk, your Shadowrun, your Earththorn, your, your, all this kind of stuff, um, there is an expectation that you are the heroes. And and I think it's because we, we're told this through media, through comic books and movies, that the heroes don't die. You know, the heroes succeed. The heroes um, come out on top in the end. And we don't often see a lot of character he, like, heroic character death in those mainstream four-color comic books at all. So I think that part of that is what forms people's mindsets going into these games. Yeah, you're right, actually. That's a good point. I think a lot of um, what we base our characters off is pop culture that we're familiar with. And very rarely do um, famous and beloved characters perish. I mean, there, there are classic examples, but for the most part plot armor is relatively thick and especially in tv series and this kind of thing and i think we kind of expect that our role-playing characters won't have to worry about um the same perils that maybe actors on screen um don't have to worry about if we look at um i don't know like what's a good example the chap from the walking dead that main guy the um the british oh, Andrew actor. Lincoln, yeah Andrew, yeah yeah you know how how many years can one man survive through zombie apocalypses and just never be shot or injured or killed at all? It just if you really think about it, it doesn't make any sense from like a, a realistic standpoint. But him being the protagonist of the thing, of course, he wouldn't just be killed off randomly or, or die halfway through a storyline because there's seasons and there's contracts have been written and the actor's got to be there, you know. So there's all this kind of extra stuff that goes into the fact that we don't see that in pop culture on our, on our screens as much. Whereas in a role playing game, 
danger is or should be round every corner and the the kind of threat of imminent death is a lot more ever present um no matter the level and i think that's something that differentiates them the two apart what do you think I, I i totally agree and i think even though the the ever present threat um of death or dismemberment should be there in heroic games and dnt in particular i actually don't think it is I think what you tend to find is a lot of these games are super survivable. And if people are honest with themselves and they look over the those kind of games that they have played and the D&D games that they've been part of, if they really look at how many characters have died, how often, it will be miraculously few. Um, and I think this is part of what we want to talk about is how can death in the campaign serve the narrative and how, how, how can people, players particularly look at character death and and see it potentially as a benefit and not just the loss of the amount of time that they put into this game you know absolutely absolutely the key word there is miraculously survived i think because there's comes a point no matter how realistic the narrative you're trying to present if the characters have survived for too long then it is a miracle and you start to question the kind of believability of it all how did he survive all of these things throughout you know um so yeah, I mean, okay, to start it off, I would like to say I do have a penchant for the idea of dismembered or otherwise injured characters and their long-term injuries that we see over time and the kind of um, continuity of injury. Uh, case in point, I really like the Mad Max films. In the first Mad Max film, his leg is injured and that injury carries through to the other films. You know, and the settings are different, the characters are different, um, his challenges are different, but he always has that bad leg from the first film. Luke Skywalker's hand. Luke Skywalker's hand, there you go. It's it's just, I really love the idea of the kind of, the, the choices that you make have these physical, tangible impacts upon you as a, as a character, as a hero, and you have to kind of deal with those um, choices throughout, and they may they may cause you a disadvantage later on. I think there's a lot to be gained from that as well, you know. Yeah, because I think this the standard D and D player sits down at the table and and really doesn't worry about their character dying. And I honestly think that's true. I think most of them will just sit down and go, ah, "I'll be all right," you know. I mean, I'll be fine. That <laughs> death isn't. I'll charge into anything. I'll do anything. It's all right. If yes, the GM could present me with a I don't know a, a beholder, and I'm only second level. I know I should run away, but. The GM probably isn't going to kill me. Do you know what I mean? That's probably not going to happen. And if and if it does, then it it probably falls on the player's fault rather than on the kind of the world's fault. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, true. It's important to have a um, kind of persistent world where there are things that are higher level than you that that have the possibility to kill you if you should come across them, and it's your job to run away and learn that they're not to be attacked, etc. But yeah, for the most part, I think D&D players um, don't have that problem as much as some other games. But saying that, on the other side of this fence, if we think about games like Dungeon Crawl Classics, or, as one of our Instagram followers said, Morkborg and this kind of thing, it seems, it seems almost written in on purpose that people die. And there's, I don't know what games sit in that middle ground of being, uh, quote-unquote, deadly, but not not kind of emphasizing the fact that characters will die as part of its as part of the features of the game you know it's either, it's either one or the other i think yeah and I, and i think it wasn't it was inevitable we were going to reach uh, dungeon core classics and the whole idea of the you know the zero level meat grinder and things oh, uh, yes. with this subject but what i will say is dcc and particularly lamentations and i often use the phrase post lamentations world which we live in now um we have these 
very thin on the ground mechanically, very easy to assemble characters who don't have a lot of, of data, you know, not a lot of complicated sheets. And we, the reason they are less complicated is because we are assuming they will die more often. And that is from the design um, point of view, right from square one and Lamentations is don't bother spending a lot of time on your character because they'll probably die. And this is where we switch. This is the interesting part about character death, where we switch from player involvement in the game to character involvement in the game and lamentations firmly takes the focus away from character involvement to player involvement so you can continue to play this adventure with a whole sequence of characters who die one after the other and it won't really stop the game advancing and it doesn't stop the plot and it doesn't stop everyone having a good time whereas in that traditional format it kind of stops the character having a good time and then producing a new level one character or fitting in or if all the characters die it really stops the game in its tracks so that's just part of an that's an evolutionary trait i guess that role-playing games have developed in order to survive but dcc and morkborg and all that are post lamentations games to a degree and are obviously you know part of that whole osr movement but i think what they do is they sacrifice complicated characters with the trade-off that the players will then understand that those characters are more throwaway quite literally and metaphysically yeah which is ironic because i think it takes away a lot of the meaning from character death i agree i think the, the most meaningful character deaths are the ones where you have put in a lot of time into them and maybe you're not expecting them to perish and they are a high level well kitted out um they've got they've had time spent on a lot of interactions with npcs in the world you know they've got a lot of time spent on um kind of buy-in and that's really where a lot of the most kind of emotional deaths are. You don't get an emotional death, uh, well, maybe you do, but you don't get an emotional death as, as often or as deep with a level zero character going through a meat grinder funnel as you would with like a level 10 D&D character who you've spent years playing, you know. Yeah, because those those meat grinders and, you know, that early character death and, and even throwaway character death at level three, four, five and Lamentations, whatever have you, it becomes, it's by its own definition, it's it's very grindhouse. It's more like, how many ways can we kill Kenny? You know, it just becomes it be humorous rather than um, kind of any sort of empathy around that, any sort of pathos around that death, you know. Um, and I think you're right. So there, there are two different two different ideas at play here. And I think... One of the things that we really want to handle with this discussion is talking about that, that meaningful character death, you know, where, where death does matter, where it serves the story, where it, the, the player can quite rightly be disappointed and maybe a little upset that their character is dead, but they should also embrace the other side of that and what, what it allows them to do and how to treat death scenes. And I think maybe we get to drill into it a little bit. How should a GM facilitate a death scene maybe you know Ooh, okay because i because i think one of the important things to say and as a case in point for this is character death should always be meaningful and not random so if you are if it's just part of a dungeon and the guys need to jump over a chasm to get to the next room and it requires a dex check and everybody passes it and one person fails and the gm goes i'm sorry that means you're dead you fall 200 feet and you die but serves no purpose to the story, and it and it's an ignoble death for that character. So this is the kind of death that shouldn't happen in role playing games. And whether that means everybody just does the automatic chasm, it's fine, you know. And I and I did read um, in a book very recently 
if the role, if the test, the skill test, whatever it happens to be, if the role, if the failure of the role does not benefit the story, don't make the role. Just say Ooh, it succeeds. That's interesting. Which is a very, yeah, it's a very powerful statement. You know, if it, if failure does not serve the story, don't make the character role because you don't need to just roll shit for no reason. Yeah, arbitrary roles don't don't add or, or you don't add anything to the story at all. If you were just rolling for the sake to to make it a game, you go for the dice. There's no point in going for the dice. It's a story first, a game second. I think. Absolutely. So this is to drag this back to our um, to our subject matter. This is about how the GM can make sure that any character death is um, valid uh, to a degree and exciting, dramatic, um, memorable. All of these things, I think, are important in, in looking at how a character may, how a player may lose their character. So let's break this down then. In that case, let's break it down a little bit. We want to have some kind of closure. I think uh, we're looking at this from a narrative viewpoint. Human beings, we like stories, and we like our stories to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if that end is death, then the beginning and middle have to lead up to that in one way or another. Even if it's not planned, that's okay. You don't have to plan for your characters to die. But when they do, the closure is an important part of what will what will lead to satisfaction for that player. Whether that's a, the final goodbye to their lover or uh, uh, they, they are in time reunited with uh, their kind of lost partner or their lost child right before their deathbed or something like that there needs to be some kind of emotional payoff whatever the character is whatever the character's story and where they've come from there needs to be some kind of closure to that you know and you could even have it um that closure and the death happen interconnected maybe it's the same event or maybe they're not maybe they're different and that's fine you know it's all contextual here but the idea of a death that is not um satisfactory is a difficult narrative tool to pull off successfully. It has been done, and it is possible, but as a general rule, you want closure, emotional closure, narrative closure, um, internal closure. Maybe the characters come to terms with their own realisation of whatever it might be. Maybe they've been struggling with their faith, and then in depth they find that faith, or maybe they've been struggling with um, their abilities and their skills, and then finally, in the moment of death, they're able to use this this you know they're able to make the shot they couldn't make before or um make the sacrifice they were too scared to make or whatever it might be you know think about the the kind of act three of their own character arc and how that can tie into the way they die and that i think will bring some closure to the whole kind of uh, their own personal narrative arc yeah i, I think you you hit on a really important point there that if there are um character subplots or um various little things running through the greater narrative that a character has going on then allowing a character to die or killing a character before those arcs are finished can feel very unsatisfactory and and can um can leave a a, a gap you know a, a definite void there in in the enjoyment um but i think i would push it even further and i, I might go forward to the idea that um the death of a character should be player choice not necessarily GM choice. Ooh, I don't know if I agree with that. Go on, elaborate. And the and the reason that I say that is, the GM should be signalling and providing opportunities for the player to make a decision about whether he puts that character in a 
potentially uh, life-threatening situation. So, so right. it becomes player choice by definition because right. the GM has given them an out. It has given them an option. And that option may be save the girl or die. That option might be allow your friends to escape the crushing boulders and, and you do not. You know, we've all seen how the Cyclops dies in Crawl. You know what I mean? Shed a tear from his single eye. You know I mean? All this kind of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, it, it allows the, the, the player character to have their, um, their particular moment of heroism or moment of victory or it may be that it's a pyrrhic victory but the gm has kind of winked and nudged to the player going you can try this but you know you might die and the player character then kind of goes i accept that inevitability or i accept that possibility at least and i'll move forward with the action knowing fine well that i'm you know leaping into the dragon's mouth or doing whatever this this amazing heroic thing that may not end well um, but the GM has kind of said, look, you know, in as, in as many words has said, I'm you could die here um, because that might be enough for a lot of players to go, ooh, right, okay, yeah, see what you're saying. Let's let's look at another option or let's kind of run away or let's do this old sort of thing. And if a GM is killing a player character where the player character did not have that get out clause, then that becomes GM choice of character death and not player choice of character death. So I think really it's a fine balancing act there between a, a GM who is willing to provide that opportunity for retreat or that change in in tactic or that failure you know the opportunity for the player character to fail and not die whereas the player might go well do you know what i'm going to succeed and die i'm going to kill the dragon and die for my friends or for the story or to complete this quest or do whatever it happens to be um rather than oh yeah you're right actually this thing i want to achieve the gm has told me it could kill me it doesn't mean that much to me if, if the if the success here doesn't mean uh isn't balanced out against my death i'm not going to do it and that's what i mean by it becomes player choice rather than character choice right right no you you make sense that that's that's fair that um ties into a more general role-playing rule that i repeat which is that when the players are about to make a choice they should be informed about the possible consequences of that decision if you're going to take vampire for example if you're going to make a role and there's a possibility of you losing humanity as a result of that. You should know going in that that is a potential outcome. Um, and as well, you know, a player who is then willing to risk death upon knowing that it's an option, that creates so much anticipation, so much tension when you've got the dice in yeah. your hand. You know, yeah. it, it levels up. The whole table is sitting there now staring at these dice, waiting for the, the, it to fall onto the number. Is he going to die? Is he going to make it? In that dice roll, there is so much tension and anticipation, and that is really where a lot of the fun is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, but it's much more fun if the player and the GM have both agreed to get into that situation, yeah. and that it's not just the GM has put your player in that situation, because then the excitement turns into desperation. Yeah, I need to make this roll or my character dies, and it's, I, it's, I don't think this is my fault if my character dies. And then I think players can start to feel a little bit more aggrieved or a little bit more put upon or a little bit more, you know, kind of punished by the GM unnecessarily or necessarily so. Right, right, right. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking more about these um, heroic type games, not necessarily something like... Uh, a Lamentations adventure where perhaps you, you get the sort of thing where you open a door and on what's on the other side of the door will instantly kill you and you just you don't realise until you're already dead and then it's like oh well all I was trying to do was move to the next scene and yeah. it, it killed me yeah. you know so that serves no purpose does it? it serves no narrative purpose yeah yeah 
Um, and it happens, a, and some people enjoy yeah. it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of a super narrative Grognardian standpoint, it's something that, you know, you, you want to have that kind of uh, narrative payoff, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So I think so. I think there's definitely a, um, a, this kind of unwritten contract but between the GM and the player, as you quite rightly said, that they should be kind of letting the ramifications of those actions be known before you make the final decision. And and then that's fair enough. And then everybody, and it's it's very difficult at that point for the player to feel cheated. Yes, yes, because they know what they're getting into, and yeah. it's their choice whether to make it part yeah. of the the kind of grander story yeah. that everyone's telling. And it might be easy to engineer those um those particular kind of scenarios and events at the climax of a story, um, or it may come along during a story as, as happenstance but i think a good gm should look at that and understand that that balance that payoff and and either look to engineer it or look to take advantage of it when it could occur yes yeah well that was actually leads on to my next question which is for gms listening to this how do you create a situation in which a player is faced with a life or death decision that they could either choose to take or not take without it having any kind of bad ramifications on the story like you know you can make you know uh, make a scene where someone has to sacrifice themselves for the good of the group but if no one wants to do it then your game can't fall apart because no player character is selfless enough to sacrifice themselves on behalf of everyone else i think there's a fine balancing act to be struck there between trying to engineer something and getting to a position where if no character dies the game comes to an end you know you kind of have to have your narrative as a straight line and have character deaths as these little branch off these little stems that branch off from that line that at any point players can take but it's not going to disrupt the overall story maybe it would be yeah. one way of doing it and and i think don't be afraid to understand the pacing of your own story as a gm so understand where you you, you are near the end and character death even if um not even if it becomes not a player choice then there is very little left to lose from a player because they're their involvement in the story is almost done. If you're playing a three-hour session and we get to two hours 40 and a character dies, I mean, yeah, they may be upset, but they're only missing out on 10, 15 minutes at the end of the game. So you know what I mean? They've played the rest of it. So it's a lot um, It's a lot fairer, let's call it that. It's a lot more understandable from a GM's point of view to start killing people near the end because let's look at movies and TV shows. People start, you know, unless it's Game of Thrones, people start dying near the end um, because... Because you all you know the running time of the film, you know when you're getting to the end of the story, and when even major characters are dying, it's upset. But like the film's going to end in ten minutes, so we don't get to see any more of them anyway. And there may be one final survivor. There may be no final survivors, and that might be, that might be you know the whole idea of the the total party kill. But where the party won might be amazing, you know. Like imagine if you know Frodo and Sam throw it into Mount Doom, but then they all die, and it's like, well, yeah, Sauron's dead, but so is everybody else, and that's that's a nice takeaway from the game oh we won but we died do you know what i mean like yeah, it's that's brilliant. yeah totally but then but then that's okay if that's the end but then don't do that 10 minutes into the session you know understand the pacing because you don't want somebody sitting around for an hour and a half or two hours uh, play 10 minutes of a game and then die that nobody wants that so just be aware of that logistically and that's not cheating and that's not fixing it going oh well you know they'll they'll feel entirely invincible in the first 10 minutes well yeah so they should because at the beginning of any um narrative you should there should be hope there should be you know the the, the idea that anything could happen and we can survive and then things will get gradually worse ideally uh, as we get towards the end so that makes sense it just makes narrative sense from a dramatic point of view 
Yeah, definitely. Which is what it's all about. And, you know, mate, I wasn't going to talk about it, but since you brought up Game of Thrones, I want to address an issue that I have with this show. Particularly the TV show. And just the one issue. <laughs> just the one relevant issue. But Game of Thrones has got the reputation as this... this um, unique piece of media where characters can die at any time and the story keeps going and it's like oh who's gonna die next you never know what main character is gonna be offed but really it's a complete bait and switch all the main characters all the protagonists survive that they, they don't die throughout the what is it eight seasons seven eight seasons whatever it is it's just if you think about it it's just secondary characters being killed off no no main character is killed the same as any other piece of media all the main characters make it to the end so that they carry the story through to a conclusion and then perhaps some of them die at the end or whatever it might be as is acceptable. But people think, you know, because um, Sean Bean was killed in season one, it's like, oh, they kill off their main characters. It's like, well, they don't. They just made him a main character and then killed him off. When really, in the story that the TV show is telling, he's only a secondary character, if not a tertiary character. Game of Thrones, I don't think, does anything unique or original with character death. It just... It just presents it in a way that that makes viewers think that it's something different when really all the main characters are there the whole time from the beginning all the way through just like in any other tv series yeah i think that's uh yeah super insightful you know um i'm not a big game of thrones fan at all you know i'm only mentioning it from a from a mainstream point of view but you're you're absolutely right um i think a bigger part of this problem is a lot of people um watching game of thrones or reading game of thrones don't have a lot of experience or understanding of the wider fantasy landscape anyway um so that they're, they're very easily kind of misled or kind of entertained um because let's be honest i mean game of thrones is is fantasy for the great unwashed really isn't it you know it's, <laughs> it's well i mean it is it's for the idiots and i mean that that doesn't mean you're an idiot for liking it of course not you know but it's it's for idiots um, and it's got enough in there to keep people entertained and stuff. Very intelligent and, and smart people will watch it and enjoy it. And that's fine. But it also has to be digestible for the mouth breathers. Do you yes. know what I mean? Yeah. So, and it has to create those water cooler moments that you're talking about. This this idea that character death can happen at any time. And you're right, they're being conned. Um, but it's it's interesting, and that leads me on to this idea of the, you know the the red shirt, this Star Trek idea of the the right. person in the party that you put into the party just so you can kill them to create the dramatic idea that death is possible. Right. Um, and you know and that's usable by GMs. You know you can put an NPC into the group and then kill the NPC, and that will that should signal to the player characters that death is possible or that you know um, loss is is could happen here and that can be more powerful if you have a beloved npc and you know you don't need to follow these same rules of respect and guardianship with the npcs that come along who are your player characters henchmen or ghouls or servants or or families or allies even you can kill them at a moment's notice if you want and i'm not saying you know take a scythe and like mow them all down just for effect don't do that because very soon then any pathos you get out of that will disappear but if you have a long-standing NPC and you want to make a, a, a really kind of powerful moment in, in a game and this NPC has been around for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and everybody loves interacting with them, then sure, kidnap them, kill them. You know, Maybe give the characters an opportunity to save them and then they don't save them. And you know, maybe they never could, and maybe the uh, or the 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 villain holding them promises to set them free, and then doesn't. Uh, you know, all of those things, or the opportunity, even better for the player character to swap their lives for the life of a beloved NPC, and then see what 
what the relationship between NPC and PC looks mm. like. If the PC is willing to kind of kill themselves, then we get back into death as player choice. So there are loads of stuff you could do, but that the idea of the, the you know the Star Trek red shirt, even though it's a cliche, you know, don't be afraid to use that. You know, kill kill NPCs and bystanders and and supporting characters and whatever to make a point because that's what they're there for. Yeah, it's a great technique and it's one that I've used in the past before as well. I mean, I can recommend using red shirts, lowercase R, in any any kind of um, setting for that purpose i think it, it works really well and i think a lot of cliches that we would roll our eyes at in tv or film work great at the gaming table in rpgs i don't know why but i think a lot of cliches play and read well with players um whereas if we saw them in a film we'd be like oh this fucking i saw that coming a mile away but when you even when players do see cliches coming at the gaming table they're still satisfying when they happen i'm not really sure what the magic is behind that but yeah, I think it's because you're part of the story, because you are you have an involvement in that and you're it's a group activity, isn't it? And you kind of we are we are somehow comforted by these <laughs> these narrative tropes that we we want to kind of ease into them as a comfortable chair, you know, like we we know this is going to go wrong and you know, we know if we don't see the villain's body that he's going to pop up later and you know these yeah. things are yeah. these stereotypes are fine, you know, because as you say we do enjoy them and you know, maybe you're absolutely right watching a TV show you'd be disappointed because you guessed the ending halfway through. But in an RPG, you don't really look at it the same way, and it's interesting to to maybe think why. But um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. We don't. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and that that leads on to death as well. Be cliche with character death. Um, partic- I particularly enjoy tragic character death. Um, if you can add an element of tragedy to any character perishing, it always makes it more resonant in the story, if not satisfactory. Imagine a um, a warrior who spends his or her entire kind of fighting career trying to prove that they are noble, and then in death, someone spreads a rumor that they were uh, an inglorious, ne'er do well, ill begotten, selfish warrior, and that is their legacy. Imagine how tragic that would be. And you, you as the players, know that the warrior actually was a good person, but no matter how hard you try and tell the villagers and how hard you try and tell everyone around you they they can't shake that reputation of 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 being a, a sort of on the on the wrong end of the stick it like just add add tragedy and emotion to to death in ways that it's not expected i think can create some really powerful moments yeah absolutely and uh, that that also makes me think kind of pinballing off that um it makes me think that if you do end up with a character death and you know it was uh, it was a big thing, and maybe the player isn't massively enjoying the fact that character died, and uh, the hum and har about creating a new character and joining the game, and they're always talking about their old character. Bring their old character back into the game in terms of people talking about them, memories. Maybe a statue of them was built somewhere. Maybe you find one of their own weapons, or or you know, there's a way to carry on the legacy of that character and their importance to the narrative and story without them being around and i think you know even if even if you want to go super stereotype and go you know i will be my old character's kind of um venger do you know what i mean i will be the the spirit of rachel vengeance who will take up the killers of that if that's what you want to do that's fine but um it doesn't have to be like that you can just be there you might not even know your previous character but you might inherit their weapons and armor and and that that means enough. And then do you start to kind of associate with them? Maybe you can do a whole Jedi thing and see them in your dreams and all that kind of stuff. Like the GM's loads of little narrative tricks to play with to bring these characters who are dead back into um, 
to make narrative points of them you know do a flashback with them and allow them to fight some more monsters one more time or you know as i said put them in the dreams put them in vision like find a journal that they'd written that you didn't know they had there are there are loads of ways for the gm to reward a player who has lost their character by reminding the group and that player how important that character was to the narrative even though they're not around anymore and i think player characters will enjoy that almost as much as having a cool moment from a from a live character yeah, awesome. I do love a good flashback scene. Those are really useful. And you could do something um, Dune-esque. You know, the Baron Harkonnen lives on through the memories and, uh, and still is able to exert his influence, though he died many years before. You know, you, you could you could do some kind of mad mind-twisting kind of uh, ancestral magical power type thing going on with, with a dead character who had access to that kind of spiritual network, maybe. There's all kinds of... Um, ways to maintain a character after their death i think when um we hang around people we absorb their mannerisms and we learn some of their slang and then when that person passes on we still carry on their memories in ourselves and in that way they live on and i think you can kind of apply that in your gaming group and make sure that the influence of that character lives on between the players and in the world at large yeah, I think that's super valuable, and it just—it's—it's it's more world building, isn't it? You know, and it's more depth to the to to the, that feeling. Um, something it does make me think um, about if your character dies, and you know, if you're a GM and one of the player characters has you know died, maybe in a way that you didn't intend, maybe in a combat scenario that went wrong, or or you know, it has been a great player choice, or whatever. Whatever it happens to be, if you're a GM or and and or a player in a situation where um, a player has lost their character and is wanting to continue on and create a new character to, to join in the next session, or indeed that session. Um, beware character clones. So uh, do not just create another version of the character that has just died in some attempt to cheat death mechanically by like, oh, well, yeah, I was playing Ronald the Barbarian, and now I'll play Robald the Barbarian, and I'll just give him the same stats and give him the same skills, and I'll just play with him again. Because that there's no point in that. GM, you shouldn't allow that. Oh, well, I'm going to play his twin brother, do you know what I mean? Like, and just play the same character. No, like, take this as an opportunity to... Um, to experience a new character class to try something totally different to, to your previous character. Don't fall into that trap of just... Um, doing a carbon copy of the character who's just died because not only will it make the death pointless but then it kind of then begins to remove death um, as a narrative tool from the game if you can just create another copy maybe even institute a rule as a GM going you know you can't play the same character class back to back you have to pick a new one you know, you played a barbarian. Barbarian's off the table for now, I'm afraid. You die again, you can make one. But for now, you know, until you go through all the other character classes, you don't get to be a barbarian again. Maybe that's a house rule that you want to institute or something like that. And that will inspire creativity. That's cool. Yeah, it worked for Chow Yun-Fat in A Better Tomorrow 2. But... <laughs> You'll have to explain that. I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, a Better Tomorrow, one of um, John Woo's uh, like Hong Kong action cinema films and at the end Chow Yun-Fat dies and then they, it was so popular they did a sequel A Better Tomorrow 2 and Chow Yun-Fat plays the identical twin of Chow Yun-Fat from the first film but we'll let him off because I love Chow Yun-Fat and I love John Woo but any other in any other uh, media it does not work do not do it yeah don't do it in D&D there's, there's, there's plenty of character classes and options and, and that counts the same for any game obviously you know if, you, if you're playing Vampire and, and your Toreador is destroyed don't play another Toreador or his child or sire or whatever yeah mm. play a Brujar play a fucking 
Bali or something mad, you know what I mean? Like, Actually, so. yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Think of a character death as an opportunity. How's that? Think of it, okay, that part, that, that part of the book is closed. Now, windows have opened, doors have opened. What is the new opportunity that pre- presented to you now that you are at this stage? You could even see it as a catalyst for opportunity. So what if you're bored with your character and you were thinking about rolling a new one or you kind of, you played the, you hadn't played the game before, you've played three or four weeks of this campaign now and you're thinking, shit, I think I've made the wrong choice with this character. Go to your GM. Don't go to the other players. Go to the GM on the sly maybe and just go, I'm thinking of changing my character. Do you fancy doing a character death? Do you fancy killing my old character so I can create a new one? Oh, love and, and, I, and I'll let you use it in the story. In the gym, I go, oh, shit, man. Oh, yeah, I've got a great yeah, idea. Yeah. And especially if the other players aren't in on it and you can pull it off as a player, they'll be like, shit, man. You know, they killed Terry. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I can't yeah, believe yeah. it. And you're like, oh, wounded. Happily <laughs> rolling up another Brujar in the corner. You know what I mean? So, and I think that that could be good. So don't, don't let, uh, even as a character you're sick of, um, let them serve a narrative purpose. Let them be uh, better for the game. Let the GM kill them. Why? If you're just going to dump the character, let the GM make a big spectacle out of it and you can maybe even look like a hero in the end of it, you know? What do you think about player character versus player character? I I absolutely hate it and I think it serves... It does more It serves more ill than it does good. Uh, it's got more negative um, payoff than it does positive payoff. Um it's something I've really struggled with at, at the gaming table from being a player and a GM. I'm very anti-PVP in my games. Uh, even, and I'll avoid games that are that have inherent um, heavy-handed PVP elements to them anyway. Um, and even ones that have a, like a penchant for PVP, I will sit with the players beforehand, session zero, and say, look, I'd like to avoid player versus player confrontation. Of course, you should have different philosophical viewpoints. Of course, you should have different ideas about how to achieve your end goals. Uh, you know, of course, I would love these in-game differences to to fuel chats and things like that. But if you start attack any time a character picks up dice to roll against another character, something has gone wrong in your game. So if your thief is trying to pickpocket from your wizard, or if your fighters end up fighting each other and rolling dice against each other's armor class, as a GM, you've lost control. Because there is, you clearly haven't given them enough to um, to fight against or to to interact with, or any, enough threats that they're now fighting with each other. And if you've got players who do not want to get on board with that, then they are quite, quite literally disruptive players. And any player who turns around and goes, "Well, my character's chaotic evil, so of course I would attack him," well, that's just an excuse for you to hide being a dick. So, and the GM needs to avoid that by going, "You can't play evil characters." Um, I'm not going to allow you to just just step in, just just be God as GM as God at that point, and just go. No, I'm not going to allow you to do that because that's not where the game is going. So just do, get that finished and move on. I, I just can't see any real uh, dramatic benefits to to true player versus player um, kind of tension. I'm certain these circumstances must have arisen at some point. I'm trying to think of. What if the GM, for example, what if there's a GM listening who has attempted to kind of sow discord among a otherwise quite combined and cooperative player group and maybe there's like some kind of a, a mind flare has taken a fighter under its under its um, thrall and has turned this fighter against himself and now the other players, after the other characters, after having spent 
the whole dungeon fighting side by side with their brother now finds their brother takes up arms against them. Is there not any kind of narrative um, benefit to, to glean from those small little, you know, oh my god, the barbarian's actually turned against us, but we don't want to kill him because he's our best friend. How do we, what do we do, you know? And then maybe they've got to put him down. And then they all stand around the, the kind of bleeding out body of their brother. And then all together they collectively turn to this mind flayer who is the, the source of their vengeance. And they eke out their efforts yeah. of violence against that, this thing. You know, that, I'm just, I'm just coming up with sounds, something. But. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. But that's not player versus player. That's player versus GM. Cool. GM player has, versus environment, GM yeah. Has, yeah, so the GM has made the decision to possess the barbarian and or the fighter. And then creates an interesting scenario that the players have to deal with. I want to defeat this guy, but we want to save him. So how, how, what's the best way to do that? And that's brilliant. That's players working together. Fair enough, it's, it sucks for a bit for the Barbarian or the fighter because it takes him out of the game. Unless the GM is going, why don't you play Barbarian as Mind Flare or whatever? Which I, which I think at that point, you're losing the point of the, the scenario. That would yeah. be a really interesting scene, but don't turn it into a full thing. And any GM who wants to sow discord amongst a group that was working well together is just um, damaging his own game. Yeah, because, true. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it, will, it will just not end well because it's not... You want to give the player characters um, the opportunity to defeat and interact with the things you're presenting them with, not with each other. Um, and, and don't think that, oh, well, it's great. You know, I'm going to... This person hits this person. This person is it's this good. And there's this boiling under... This tension that... That normally tends to thinly hide real player versus player problems rather than character versus character problems and this is where the problem comes if if you can set it in stone that the player characters should like each other then it helps the players like each other yeah and and that that can be that can be quite a problem do you know because even if you go to one player and say oh i want you to in the middle of a combat you know stab stab your friend in the back or whatever um, and it's like, oh, because I was possessed by a mind flayer, I did it. If I was the guy, if you stab my character in the back in the middle of a combat, I'd be like, you have in real life let me down. Ooh. You have you have in real life betrayed me a little bit. And I'm, you know, it's a game. I get upset about it. But that becomes player versus player at that point. Why? Why would you? Why do you think that's okay to do that? Why do you think it's okay to gang up with the GM and kill me, especially if it ends up in character death? I mean, or loss of something that I've gained. You know, if it doesn't, if I don't die from it and do whatever, and then I find out you were possessed, then that's fun, and we move on the next session. But if it makes any real difference to the game, then I'd be upset. And if it doesn't make any real difference to the game, then why do it? Ah, there you go. See, it always comes back down to this question, doesn't it? Yeah, but I, I would feel I, I, I mean, you know, I'm a grown up, and I'd like to think I wouldn't feel that way. But I could understand somebody feeling aggrieved or yes. kind of ganged up on. Yeah. In that instance where the GM has kind of assisted one player in defeating or robbing or killing another player. I just I don't see any value in it at all, really. I'm understanding the differentiation between players versus GM or players versus environment and player versus player. Like, there's still ways to, to um, mess with the internal workings of a player group externally if you like like the environment is doing it they've walked into a, a misty fog and the fog is making them see foes where really there's friends and this kind of thing that's that's still the players together versus the environment even when they're scrapping with each other because it's the environment that's making them do it yeah. so I, I'm, I'm understanding now the difference between um true player versus player combat 
um, you know, conflict. You, you've got to be aware of this player, and that, that there's a certain kind of problem player and uh, that will use their character traits, so their character's personality, as an excuse to shit on or be nasty to or talk down to another player. And it's so, like, thankfully, you kind of nip it in the bud at my table. I wouldn't have it, but it's so common. I've seen it. I've heard stories over the years of people doing it, and it and it can be, and it's not, it's, it's almost this infallible excuse. Oh, well, my character doesn't like orcs or whatever. Like, that's my character's trait. I'm just role-playing as this is some sort of defense against being an absolute arsehole. It's not a defense. Like, play another character. Don't play a character who's an arsehole then, because all that allows you to do is be an arsehole. And it's not a very good excuse. You know, you can have poor character traits and equality. Of course you have, you know, be an addict, be a drunk, be, you know, angry, have lack of temper, play with all of these interesting ideas that a character could have, but never use it as an excuse to berate or argue or put down another player's character because you are in effect putting down that player. And you may know, you may feel you know them really well, especially don't do it if it's a fucking stranger. Like definitely don't do it at a convention mm. game or a tournament game or a, or a game where you don't know the people very well. But even if you do, please bear in mind that those words are coming out of your mouth and into the ears of another human being. And yes, we can separate player character from, from player, but it's very hard to, to unconsciously do that. Um, if, if you walked away and you, you were, we spent an entire game where you were calling me all sorts of shit. And then you went, it's just in character, dude. Like, get over it. I'd be like, mm, yeah, maybe it is, but I, I, it felt a bit fucking, yeah. felt a bit full on, you know what I mean? So it's different. If, if we have a script, it's very different. Because if I if we if we went onto a stage and the, the director had handed us two scripts and your script says loads of bad shit about me, I know that's not you because the script says so. And that's GM versus player character. But if you are ad-libbing, or, or we are doing theatrical improvisation together, which is what role-playing is, then this is coming from you, you know, and I'm going to hold you more responsible for that than if it comes from the script. And I think that's an okay way to think. Yeah, that's a really good way to separate the two elements, I think. Movie and theatre and acting analogies work very well um, with a lot of these um, role-playing discussions, so it's really good to bring those back in when we can and to look at them from a different angle. So... As an extension of that, if a player character kills another player character, then we can safely say something has gone wrong for the most part, unless it was a kind of dramatic decision that all were happy to uh, follow through with. I think if that is happening, we should default to previous comment. That should be the choice right. of both player characters. Yeah. So if we if we put ourselves in a situation where your character kills mine, that should be okay with both of us. Yes. Um, to serve the to serve the story. If I'm happy with that and you're happy with that and I think it's great and I want to do a uh, death shout and a eulogy and you, you can put me down and but then you're kind of like, oh, I've killed my brother and all this kind of stuff, then that's great and that's fun mm -hmm. and we, we both had a fun time. As long as we were both agents in that decision, then I think it's a win. I think that the minute you take the agency away from the player character and their death, then that's when you have a problem or, or potential problem anyway. Love that. And... I don't expect much of what we've been talking about really applies to uh, quote-unquote high fatality games. No, uh, going back to what we said earlier, I think there is a. it's all about the perception of mortality moving into the game. And I think if you yes. value, um, if you have less value on life moving into the character's life, moving into the game, then a lot of these things don't apply because you're not, there is no emotional um, 
thing connected to the loss of these characters because it's it's an assumed it's an, an assumed part of that game isn't it for example all the level zero funnels and all the meat grinders from this kind of thing you might get let's say three or four characters that you're playing at once and they're all level zero maybe you've got a farmer a weaver a cooper and uh i don't know um leech collector and then you you know you go through the level zero funnel if it's a dungeon or whatever it might be everyone dies except the leech collector and you come out the other end and you have your level one character who's a leech collector when i've heard stories of these things when people are relaying their experiences of these level zero funnels and when people discuss what happened in the game it's always with a big smile on their face it's always ah oh, this was this was so hilarious my barrel maker my cooper guy he couldn't survive 30 seconds i had a cook with a uh, rolling pin who tried to attack a goblin he got killed how how hilarious was that my leech collector actually survived the whole way through and it's always it makes for a great game and it makes for most of the time hyper violent game and it makes for a really enjoyable entertaining experience but it's a very 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 different type of character death to this kind of long-term heroic uh narrative closure death that we've been talking about so i think it's a it's a kind of payoff, isn't it? You're either looking for one or the other. Um, I think to get both, I'm sure it's happened, it would be a rare and lovely thing. And if, if someone has had that kind of same pathos in the level zero funnel, then please come and tell us about it because I'd love to hear about that. But I think for the most part, you, it's, it would be hard to get both. You'll either get one or the other. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, as we keep saying, it's about the sort of game you want to play. There's no there's no wrong way to play. If everyone's having fun, then that's great. And I'd very happily join into a DCC level zero funnel with four or five level zero characters and have most if not all of them die you know yeah I've, I've played those sessions and i've ran those sessions and you're absolutely right they are fun but there is a it's the social contract isn't it it's the you know what the crack is going into that game um and you, you do laugh when your cook gets beheaded <laughs> do you know what i mean or when <laughs> when your pet chicken falls into the into the chasm and ends up on a spike or whatever it's, and that that's part of it you know that that is what you're playing it for um i think there's a slight addendum to this um, a lot of what we're talking about can be applied to because we said like death or dismemberment and disfigurement and all that kind of stuff be aware of those things as well so you can make an impact on the game by taking a character's hand or a huge scar over their eye or taking one of their eyes or, or you know taking giving them a really making them very close to death um, can be as valuable or as useful as actually killing the character and then what you can do is because of that, you can just roll through this and say, oh, it's going to take your character six months to heal. The whole group has to wait six months before you continue on through the mountain pass or whatever, by which point the, the army's forces, the enemy's forces have been marshalling even more and the village you were going to rest in over the next month has now been burned down. And you can make it narratively poignant that one of the or more of the characters would were hurt in such a way that it took them a long time to heal. And then that the rest of the story that the real world can be churning on and you can the, the player characters have to play catch up in the narrative because of that so you can make these heavy wounds be just as important and you can apply that to months you can apply that to weeks or days depending upon the pacing of your game you know if you're if you're tracking a killer and you get shot then that doesn't have to be the end of your character but then you might have to spend a few weeks in hospital and what's the serial killer getting up to while you're up, laid up in hospital you know that could be part of the narrative and you know he's he's out you because you got wounded three more victims have been killed and then you get out of hospital and then you have to chase them down again with this kind of you know this heroic wound that might you know take minus five away from your shooting arm and all this kind of stuff and you know all, all of this really cool stuff so allow a lot of what we're talking about with your know, character death 
to come into character wounds and you know character disablement um whether it's temporary or permanent disablement yeah there's a there's a lot to be drawn from there and i think it's really satisfying for players to make these really dangerous risky decisions and then you know if it all doesn't go right they get to come out the other side still but a changed character i think that's always a always a really cool uh, dramatic tool to use yeah um I'm running a game at the moment and the players went into a situation they knew full well was more deadly than anything that the denizens of the world would ever attempt and all the NPCs thought they were crazy for doing it. And they they did in fact get very injured during this uh, particular quest and they come out the other side with these sort of um, near-mortal wounds, these almost like life-changing wounds that they now have to bear for all to see. And it's impossible for them to hide the the kind of consequences of their actions, if you like, and they have to kind of wear them as a as a result of what they chose to do. And I'm having the NPCs now react to them appropriately. I think it's just a really good way to kind of mix it up a little bit. Um, and as well, since we're talking about character death, uh, one player in this group came to me and he said, "Look, I know that we're we're um, on a story arc here, and I know that there's at some point the season's going to end of this game, and we're going to reach some sort of finale. And I want to let you know that." I'm totally happy with a doomed ending for my character, and I just <laughs> always I, nice. Always, yeah, yeah. I just loved hearing that. I love, I love a sad ending. I love a tragic ending. I love uh, when characters don't get what they want, or when something really tragic happens, or when be careful what you wish for. You know, all of this kind of stuff. I, I love these really sad moments at the end of stories, and just to have a player come to me and say, "Look, I'm." I'm not expecting a happy ending for my character based on what's happened so far. I'm, I'm certain something bad's going to happen. I don't know what. But sort of just gave me the permission to go down that path, you know, whereas before I might have been a bit hesitant to do so. Oh, I want to make sure that my players do have a satisfying closure to this season. Um, and it, it just sort of gave me permission to say, no, I, I, can t- I know the sort of GM you are. I know that you like to do this kind of doomed, horrible stuff. And I just want to let you know that I'm totally happy for my character to end up in this sort of one of these one of these horrible situations as a result of his actions and i just thought that was really great to hear from a player yeah and do you know what that's really it's really great to hear it's really um it's a great for the gm because it gives you gives you loads of options and it's really healthy uh, from a player group to have those discussions about you know is it okay that i enjoy yeah please do end my character yeah. and do you know what if you are a player who has listened to this and played in D if you want a on a quiet chat or a personal chat with the GM going, you know, I listened to this podcast and, you know, most of what the guy said was ridiculous. But they did make me think, you know, don't be worried about killing my character, dude. If it if it if you think it's gonna be like scare the other rest of the player characters, fucking do it, man, and we'll plan a real death. And if that because GM's gonna go GM might go, Yeah, man, let's do it, you know, I'll throw a I'll throw a you know, six owlbears at you or whatever and I'll tear you to pieces and the rest of the players will be like, What? <laughs> and uh, and that's great because it, even if you're not even if you are attached to your player but you are happy as a player to have the GM kill your character if you're almost signing permission slip at that point on you you're kind of saying look don't worry about it I ain't I ain't too connected to I, I don't want to die but if you kill me I'm just going to create a new character and there'll be no bad blood between us and it's fine and then that allows that it has become player choice ultimately but then in the game itself, it looks and is all intents and purposes GM choice at that point because the GM knows he has previously been given license to death or dismemberment to that player character. So yeah, that that's that's just a healthy conversation to have between a player character and a GM. And that's what we should be striving towards, you know? And if it's the other way around, if you're a GM who is f- thinking about killing 
a PC or a group of PCs, speak to the player characters outside of the group and go, this is what I'm thinking about doing, guys. Would you, do you think this would be okay? And I know that there's a mystery of death would be taken out of that or whatever, but the game you would all enjoy during it would still be enjoyable. People knew the ship was going to sink, but they went to go and see Titanic. Do you know what I mean? It's like you don't have to... The end of the story doesn't have to be a surprise for it to be enjoyable. Exactly. So have that communication between GM and players, between players and players. And what you'll end up with is a much more friendly, and much more fun game at the end of it. Yes, definitely. I think as with a lot of other things, um, again, role-playing is life. But opening those channels of communication, keeping them open and having and allowing healthy discussion is always going to benefit the gaming table as it does in relationships and the workplace and everything else. Communication is key. Yeah. So I think in essence, in conclusion, what we're saying is don't be scared of character death in your games, but be mindful of character death in your games. You know, um, just be aware of how players feel and what, what the player character is losing, what the player, what are you taking away from that player and to encourage them to understand that you're not taking away the game um, that you're just providing them new opportunities, as you quite rightly said, to investigate uh, and, and experience other parts of, of, of that of that game. So, but let it be a two way street. You know, don't don't um, no throwaway deaths. You know, de- deaths should be meaningful in role playing as it is. You know, with everything else. So, you know, role playing is life. You know. <laughs> Perfect. I really like that. I hope that's um, been of some help to listeners. Uh, thank you again for sending in those questions, sending in those answers to those questions because we really do appreciate it. <clears throat> and if we are at all any help to any of you, then we've done a good job here and we're, we'll both be quite happy if we've helped out and assisted in making a game better in any way. And, and if you've had your character killed unfairly or if you've had an amazing character death in the game, jump on the Discord, tell us about it. I want to hear you the stories, um, you know, and, and I want to share them. So if anyone's got a, you know, a really, really bad character death that they're really annoyed about, you know, come and come and tell me about that because I, I want to hear about those those experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I really like that, man. I think I've I've um, got some takeaways myself from that discussion. So always a pleasure. Now, moving on from character death, we want to cover a book, a certain. Uh, new role-playing game i am dying to hear about this um it's something that i've only seen from afar and i'm waiting with bated breath for jamie to explain this to both me and you guys the listeners so jamie would you please bring up this uh tome and talk to us about it yeah it's obviously been a few episodes since we've um we've we've highlighted a new rpg and as anyone who's been listening to the show long enough knows that i'm a um quite a fan of the osprey publications uh, so that that are coming out, um, and the most recent one is Sigil and Shadow by R.E. Davis, a role-playing game of urban fantasy and occult horror. Now, I'm just going to preface this with the, uh, the the subtitle there: urban fantasy and occult horror. Now, it's interesting that they label themselves as this because I think it's much more leans much more into occult horror than it does urban fantasy. But as we discuss it, I can I can see how it will be a bit more of a catch-all. So it's, as I've just said, it's the new release from Osprey. And physically, it follows the same format of the other role-playing games. So it's a um, A5 format, hardback, uh, well-bound, glossy pages, beautiful production quality as always. Page count-wise, it comes in a little smaller than some of the others. So it comes in at about 200 pages, but still chock-full of content. Um, it's written really well, and 
what I would say is it. I'm going to start it off with um, a statement and then a, a, um, an explanation of why I've made that statement. This is World of Darkness light. Ooh, okay. Now, the reason I've made that statement is, and, and I, I kind of hate doing this thing where every dark, gothic, urban horror game has to be looked at through the lens of World of Darkness. Now, I, that may be doing the new games a disservice, but I think it's testament to the impact that the guys at White Wolf, especially in the early days, had on the role-playing industry and the community and the player base and the ideas, that we almost have to acknowledge that these games exist and that they will influence um, games that come out later. So uh, I, there's a lot that I see in Sigil and Shadow that I've seen through Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf, Mage, um, various other parts of, of the World of Darkness and the New World of Darkness and what's come afterwards. But I also respect the idea that um, the writer and Osprey will be pulling at some of the same threads that World of Darkness pulled at, this whole idea of you know um, urban horror which obviously did exist before World of Darkness came along and, and will exist after it. Um, but there is lots in here that I see as, as World of Darkness derivative. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and what Sigil and Shadow does is it um, provides a toolbox for GMs and players to run a game which feels like a World of Darkness game, but is their own um, slice of occult horror or and or urban fantasy and the reason it's a toolbox is sigil and shadow does not really present a solid working background based on any one particular race so this is not about vampires it's not about werewolves it's not about frankenstein's monster it's not about ghosts it's not about um demon hunters it's not about people going through old libraries it's not about um people defending themselves against a zombie attack what it is is it's all of those things right. in what in whatever um mix that you want it to be so uh Sigil and shadow your characters are either created as illuminated or shadowed um, illuminated we can assume they are the kind of characters you would normally create in an investigative game or like a hunter's hunted or a call of cthulhu style game some sort of occult investigative group where you play the humans who the veil has been torn away and you can see the world for what it truly is and the horrors beneath it they are the illuminated kind of characters and the shadowed characters are essentially humans who have become monsters themselves so if you look at every and again making the world of darkness reference but um vampires are humans but then they become vampires a zombie was once human and then becomes uh, a zombie or a ghost was once human and then becomes dead or but it then sigil and shadow goes beyond that and and presents these kind of archetypes for the shadowed um whether you can be someone who um has something inside of them now that thing inside of them could be an alien parasite that thing inside of them could be a demon that has possessed the body it could be the the spirit of somebody else um so th these are the kind of wider catch-all character classes if you will that sigil and shadow presents and it does that on both sides of the of um the light and dark so it provides these kind of wide class options for the the illuminated and also these very wide options for the for the shadowed and it seems to present the idea that you can mix and match these characters within a group. Um, so you can play the librarian kind of occult scholar, but then you can also play the damned, um, possessed guy who they're all working together for the same ends. So it doesn't say you have to play the illuminated versus the shadowed, um, likewise. Um, there's 
mechanics themselves, and this is part of the reason why I called it light, are very thin on the ground. Um, it's a percentile based system that you've only got four stats. Um, each stat is affected by a skill, uh, which gives you a percentage uh, dice to roll for a success test. You get under that, you succeed, you get over that, you fail. Um, with a few little nice twists in there, if you roll doubles, they become criticals. Um, if doubles under, become critical successes. Uh, if you roll doubles over, they become critical failures or crucial failures, and uh, which I quite like. Um, so th there's a small list of skills, uh, some of which have uh, sub-skill categories, such as kind of different types of magic and stuff like that. Um, Combat-wise, it keeps it very light. Um, guns and um, close combat weapons merely have a range and a damage, and the damage is, um, you know, tends to be like one dice, two dice. It's all based on d10s and percentiles. Um, so combat is very light um, and you can kind of tailor it to where you want. Um, where Sigil and Shadow really steps into its own and I think does a good job and becomes more than the sum of its previous parts and its influences is how it approaches um, mysticism and magic and magical practices in the modern world because it is um, the game takes place, uh, assumed takes place now. Um, you know, in the modern world that we all know and understand. And it's the way of taking these uh, traditional occult practices, be it magic, be it mysticism, summoning, um, all of that kind of stuff. And it really discusses how that looks in the modern world. You know, people on chat rooms, you know, um, discussing rituals and how you can mi mix technology with all practices and how, you know, witchcraft stays alive in the digital age. And I think it's a really interesting look at that. And I think it actually does that a lot better than, um, than a lot of super modern uh, world of darkness takes for instance you know with v5 which i've quite often um slagged off before um fails to kind of take these old horror concepts and put them through a very modern lens um and sigil shadow does this and it does and i think it successfully does this and it allows you to look at them in a very different way it allows you to play that um that dark horror movie but have it unashamedly set now in the modern world and tips and tricks on to how they make the modern world scary still. You know, because as a role player, we often fall into this trap of thinking, well, once you have the internet and your mobile phone and all of these things, then this kind of light, the darkness has nowhere to go and shrinks further and further back and becomes, um, you know, a lot less scary in essence. Um, but then Sigil and Shadow kind of manages to play with those ideas and allows you as a GM to come up with a world where these things still matter. I mean, it, it has a very basic cosmolo uh, cosmology attached to it, where um, Earth is surrounded by a kind of uh, a veil, a curtain that keeps it from the outer darkness. And there are people who can manipulate the curtain and peek into it and open it to allow things to come in or for them to go out. Um, so it, it's, it's a concept that's very easy to buy into, but it's very flexible cosmology, which allows you to and build it into any modern horror game that that you want i really like the idea of the mixed player group different types of character all together on the same kind of storyline <clears throat> and i also really like the idea of um the modern setting because as you said um and I, i'm used to doing this myself as well but in horror games i want to make sure most of the time they're set before you can just call for help on your mobile phone or Google the answer to the problem. You've got to go and pour in the ancient library and that kind of thing. Because Not just because they're tropes and not just because they're kind of pop culture touchstones, but because 
it's from a from a kind of dice rolling skill based obstacle based outlook it's a lot it's a lot more satisfying and it's a lot easier to have quests that don't involve sitting on the internet for three hours and or getting your phone out to google something you know so I'd, it's you know my in some some ways I'd, i'm going to admit it it's a little intimidating to run a horror game in the modern day and to have to have characters that do have that technology at their fingertips because it could very easily um kind of overshadow or in some cases ruin whatever storyline you've got set up if your players can just google who's the head of ghost corp and then if they just look at your main villain's linkedin page you know it's a it's a it's a real different kind of approach to horror and i think having all those tools available um for player groups would lead to a lot of unexpected situations for for i don't know for me as a gm at least i don't know about other people but so the idea that it, the fact that it covers the modern day experience i think is really interesting to me as really something that i want to read more about yeah i mean it it's only as i say it's only a 200 page count and because it covers such a wide um kind of net then it, it doesn't drill down too much into anything in particular it's more of um of an a fountain of ideas um so i can imagine using Sig- sigil and shadow to run one shots or very short stories or if i had a group of people who maybe haven't done any role playing before because the system is quite friendly um i would be like oh you know if you've seen this kind of movie you know if you've seen kind of alien or whatever like we can do that and it's not a, it's not a sci-fi game but you know that in that you, you could run it as sci-fi but it's kind of modern day um but nonetheless it allows you to do what i would say was a, is a horror movie you could do a horror movie night with it whatever kind of movie it needs to be with Jason or Freddy or the howling or whatever this kind of gives you that that toolbox to be able to do all of that and because the system is so light you just throw a few stats at something and it's done and it's written in quite a way uh, quite a good way in that it it encourages and reminds the GM that the the stats aren't really important it's the description and um you know the vibe and the tone and i think that's really it's really important and quite often overlooked that you know the mechanics aren't mega important they're just there to facilitate the rest of the story sigil and shadow is full of that so even though i have to admit that it is derivative i i also think it it has it's got elements of ingenuity to it and it's well written it's well presented so for someone who's interested in that world of darkness style game doesn't know where to start and doesn't want to get mired down into 30 years of vampire the masquerade canon and cosmology and but fancies doing that kind of game with their group where they can play one of them can play a werewolf and the other one can play a vampire and you want to do all that kind of stuff then shadow is a lovely toolbox at a very different uh, a very good price that you can pick up and not be kind of swamped down with 400 source books you know it's a nice little perfect package for people who are interested in that but don't want to do this deep dive into this this massive big game world you know yeah man these osprey publishing books honestly the the, the little collection of these osprey books they're really kind of um covering a lot of wide ground here in a in a a really modern way i'm really digging them yeah I'm, i'm really pleased that um sigil and shadow doesn't do what any of the other previous it doesn't attempt to do what any of the other books do and you're right i don't know how long osprey can continue to do that without kind of covering the same ground to a degree but um i, I think it's a it's an interesting game i think maybe to expe- long term or experienced players there might not be enough um kind of meat in there um so it, it is just ideas and i think any as I say, any GM who's been playing long enough probably has read a lot of books that have all of these ideas. So 
it's very friendly to an inexperienced GM or a, a person whose collection isn't very large. But I must have to confess that for me, you know, I'm blessed enough that my boot collection is very large. Um, there's not a there's not a lot new in here. Um, there's not a lot I hadn't already considered or seen or read. Mm. Um, it's interesting to read somebody else's point of view on kind of modern occultism in in a game and how to facilitate that. Um, but that in itself, uh, um, is it enough to for Sigil and Shadow to warrant position on myself on my shelf and for me to bump it onto my must playlist? I don't know. I don't know. But is it well written? Yes. And I think would it appeal to people who don't have a huge collection of role-playing books? Yes, I think it would. And I think, um, without knowing, that that is Osprey's intention. So I think from that point of view, they have succeeded in providing a, a tome for the kind of people who've been enjoying their you know, skirmish rules for tabletop games and stuff like that, something very easy to get into, then I think Osprey have, have done well with this. This actually leads me to something that I was going to mention earlier in the discussion about high fatality games. Because they're designed to... Uh, they're designed for characters to perish quite quickly and the character sheets are quite relatively easy to build. The system's quite small. There's not any longevity to it in the same way that there is for these kind of uh, bigger or heroic or whatever you want to say type games. I think the style of play is different. As you said, this is more suited to one-shots and shorter sessions because if you continue a game of, I don't know, Morgborg and you've got the same character for sessions and sessions and sessions, months and months and months, or Troika, or anything like that. The the leveling up and the actual um, the system of of the player character isn't really that deep, and there's not really many places you can go after a while. You just your numbers get higher and the skills get easier, but there's no yeah. um, advancement to be had because they're designed they're perishable. They're perishable characters, yeah. um, and I think that it, it's a kind of payoff, isn't it? With what sort of game you want to play? Hundred percent. And um, Sigil and Shadow does this, and it. it the way it treats leveling up and advancement is very um, easy going. It basically says, look, when, when you think your characters hit like a milestone, um, then just level them up and just call it the next rank. There's no counting XP or anything. Yeah. Like, just hit a milestone, level up. You might do that a couple of times, but by the time you hit like rank four, so like you're done, you should be finished whatever story you're doing and move on. So I think it unashamedly um, wants to point itself in the direction of doing kind of shorter tales or one shots or you know and i think because it's influenced by you know modern horror and you know the short story or the movie and stuff like that and then that is it's very easy to represent that in a role-playing scenario in a role-playing setting so yeah i think it it, it does that yeah and i think you're right it does you don't you're not going to spend hours creating a, a sigil and shadow character because you're probably only going to play them once or twice and that's fine yeah yeah okay so another question just briefly on a previous episode we covered um, another Osprey title, Righteous Blood and Ruthless Blades, and yeah. in that game there is a mechanic called the is it the Killing Aura? Yes. Where it kind of uh, demonstrates at a glance these martial artists' kind of proficiency and uh, their deadliness, and other masters can at a glance understand how deadly their new opponent is. And it was a very it's a simple mechanic, and it's only one number, but it very succinctly sums up Wuja as a martial arts genre and, and how these fighters would interact with each other. Is there anything unique like that in Sigil and Shadow where it kind of has its own little simple mechanic or maybe a more complex one that kind of sums up its its flavour and its taste with something that is, is mechanically relevant? Um, do you know what? I'm going to say no because the mechanics in Sigil and Shadow 
are far less elegant than they are in, in Ruthless Blades. Right. Um, they're far more practical. Um, they're far more just a simple vehicle for the telling of a, of a horror story. Um, there's, there's not really a lot to be admired in the mechanics, only because there's not a lot of mechanics. Um, and I think they've obviously made a decision to re keep, I mean, it's super light, super light system, you know. Um, like I say, the, the dice rolling thing with rolling under and over and some crucial and so that, I mean, that is as complex as it gets. Um, mm. So that, that really is, you know, um, you're only going to get four stats for for anything and some, some hit points and initiative stat. Um, it really doesn't have a lot going for it in terms of mechanics. Um, but what it loses in mechanics, I guess it, it, it wants to pick up in style and tone. So I can kind of forgive it from a design point of view, but it is the the lightest mechanically of all of the the Osprey titles so far, in my opinion. And that that is saying something because not, not many of them are very mechanically heavy. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose in a lot of ways it kind of has to be mechanically light because it's covering this really broad range over this broad time period and all these different yeah. types of characters you can play. So it, I yeah. suppose in a lot of ways it can't really afford to be too deep because yeah. it's got to cover such a broad bracket. And I think in order to um, praise Ruthless Blades and defend Sigil and Shadow, um, Ruthless Blades is designed to represent a very niche um, style and a, a, a very niche type of story. Whereas even though Sigil and Shadow is a cult horror, I think we can all agree that that can look very different. You know, we can we can do lots of different things with that, and for it to feel very different. Um, so, and I think because of that, it, it's its mechanics are not quite as tied to the background as they could be with something like Ruthless Blades. I see, I see. Okay, my my curiosity um, has not yet been satisfied, and I really do want to pick up a copy of this myself because it just sounds awesome. As does most of the games in this line. To be fair, Osprey have really hit it out of the bag recently, haven't they? They really have, um, and I, I'm really pleased for them. And uh, that everything they brought out so far has been really good. And I'm really pleased that they're keeping the same format. And I'm really pleased that the the prices have remained solid because I mean, this the sigil and shadow um, it retails at twenty five pounds in the UK, um, but it's a very well put together book. It's a beautifully um, bound, beautifully produced um, piece of work, and, it, and you know it reads well. The art is 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 okay. Um, you know, I think anyone who's who, who's interested in doing some horror gaming um, probably won't be disappointed by reading through Sigil and Shadow. But I must, to repeat myself, any experienced gamer who's already got a lot of horror games that they like may find very little new here. Thank you for bringing that to the episode today, Jamie. You're welcome. <clears throat> now, usually we cover films or music only when a film or music has really piqued our interest and really brought some passion out of us and we wanted to come and share it with you and if that's not the case then you just don't get a film or music on the episode it's really as simple as that we don't want to fake interest in something just for the sake of the format so you can be sure when we bring films when we bring albums or singles or musicians or whatever it is it's something that is has really spoken to one or both of us and it's really something that we wanted to come forward with to share um so with that in mind if the format is not um to your liking listener then do be aware that it's because of our scruples i suppose rather than um just doing it for the sake of it i think that's fair to say right yeah i do and you know what i think even in you know we're in, in our early early time with this you know 
every everything will evolve and and morph and change and you know if we end up doing a bit less of that that's fine if we do a bit more of it that's fine but i think it's also fair to say that we will and are um, happy to be influenced and encouraged by the listeners and people on the discord if we get a lot of people talking about specific movies or specific tv shows or specific music then we will talk about that more you know so it, it's it's a bit of to and fro you know so if if you come to us and say you know this is a great movie and come up to us on the discord and say you know have a watch of this and let's talk about it and we watch it and we think yeah you know there's some there's some value to be had in discussing that and t- telling people about it and stuff then we, yeah we'll definitely do that so um it's a it's a given and, give and take thing i think isn't it yeah, and we get great recommendations in the Discord from people already. Um, there's been a great influx of Australians into the Discord recently, so shout-outs to our Aussies who have joined in and brought with them Aussie music and a bit of Australian pop culture for us to dive into as well. And we have our artsy Germans who we love and appreciate, and they've always got these strange uh, recommendations for us of these weird sci-fi books and films that we've not heard of. It's just it's a great little melting pot of things for us to kind of work through and hopefully discuss and talk about in the future so yeah please keep bringing in recommendations guys please keep uh, keep the stuff rolling in if you want to be part of the discussion there's always chance to join our discord um, check the details in the bio of wherever you're listening to this um, the discord invite will be there you can also email us at human energy field podcast at gmail.com check us out on instagram human energy field podcast um, if there's a film that you want to hear us talk about or if there's something you think we need to check out if there's books or whatever else it might be, you can let us know there. And um, if we like it, we'll cover it. Pretty simple. Well, I wanted to mention briefly our Forges of Nothos Warhammer sort of narrative project that we're putting together. And just take a little look so far at who is doing what over on the Discord, what's been what's been crafted and put together, what's come out of our, our efforts so far. Because there really has been some great stuff come through. Um, I really like... Um, some of the ideas that people come up with. I think because Nothos is, is such a kind of crazy, no-holds-barred environment, we get a lot of similar vibes from army choices people are putting together. You know, we've got, like, someone wants to do Beastmen. Um, someone, was, I think, was talking about Space Skaven or something. I personally would love to do, like, a Hrud army, or at least a Hrud unit, because I'm a big fan of the Hrud. Um... We have uh, our friend Mr. Kame 81 oh, I believe his name is Paddy. He's been doing um, these great Eldar in this, these awesome like retro colours. Um, they're looking really well. Yeah, he's, he's talking about picking up some Harlequins as well, which I'm, I'm really interested to see. Some, yeah, some yeah. classic Goodwin Harlequins. Yes, oh, mate, those, those old Goodwin sculpts are just yeah. iconic, aren't they? Those Harlequins. Um, what else have we got? We've also been uh, treated to some great weathering and painting work by our good friend of the show jack collister brown who's um been making some lunar wolves um for nothos and oh, i saw this dreadnought in person the other day it's four heavy bolters latched onto the side of this dreadnought it's an absolute beast just looking at it makes my ears hurt i'm trying to imagine how loud it would be firing all four heavy bolters at once i love that thing and he's got some achieved some really great uh, weathering over this kind of bow and ebony look with his lunar wolves as well and they just look absolutely perfect. Our friend Ari um, has painted this really great group of Terminators. Um, and what I love about Ari's painting is that he never fails to put hazard stripes on stuff as well. So I love a good black and yellow stripe on an assault cannon or on a chainsaw or something like that. You literally cannot get enough hazard stripes on 
Nothos units. Yeah. Or any units. Or any units at all. Just, yeah, keep the hazard stripes coming, guys. I love them. Metal Face 13's been um, putting together Dark Eldar squads, which look brilliant. Um, and he even mentioned kit bashing them with Ardeneth uh, Deepkin, which would be awesome as hell. So I wonder Ooh, if that's, yeah, that'll come to fruition. Obviously, this kind of project, there's all kinds of ideas flying around. And, um, you know, when, when some of them are followed through, it's always nice to see the end and result. And I think... Um, I already said something that I definitely want to do. Um, one of the guys in the Discord said that when we when we finish our armies, we have to do army pausing photos, like in the Warhammer Fantasy Battle Third Ed Armies book. Uh, and yes, I'm serious. And anyone who's aware, if you're not aware of this book, go out and, and look at the images of it online or whatever. There's uh, Warhammer Armies is the, the first real supplement for Warhammer Fantasy Battle Third Edition, like the, the major supplement. And it has all of the kind of... Um, big names in games workshop back then so you don't know, like brian ansel and uh all these guys you know like john blanche and um uh jervis johnson and all these guys the guys posing in front of their the rank and flank armies <laughs> um you know in their old school metal or golden demon t-shirts you know with their mullets and stuff like that it's just super 80s and super cool and i am definitely going to you know put out my you know, true sons of Russ, and then like put a sleeveless full metal RPG t-shirt <laughs> on, and my hat backwards and pose for it. So, uh, you know, <laughs> stick my tongue out and put my sunglasses on. So, yeah, we need to get that going. That you know, yeah, definitely. We've got some fun. retro photos going to complement yeah. the uh, the the themes that we're going for here. Really cool. Yeah. I love that. So, yeah, guys. I mean, thank you for um, continuing this this project with us. Um, I have yet to get my sisters a battle painted um not only because i'm not good enough but because i don't have um the money to commission them but i do plan on getting them done at some point i do however now have a freshly painted batch of um ghosts that i'd converted quite a while ago um you can see these on my instagram at gamma valley and recently a gentleman in the discord who goes by cupboard of shame um, was very kindly offered to uh paint them up for me and um, he's done an absolutely bang up job they look great i specifically requested john blanche yellows and browns and um he's done a really good good job of making them look kind of zinchy horror i don't know it's kind of puss yellow just strange ghosts um so he's done a really good job so if you want um a commission if you're looking for paint jobs even if they're quick and simple and dirty but with a bit of uh kind of character to them as well then check out cupboard of shame on our discord or on instagram and i'm sure he'll be happy to paint something up for you for a appropriate price well we've got a lot more we um, we can see at some point and i think now that the world is opening up i wouldn't be surprised if sometime in the next kind of few months or certainly before christmas that you may you may get the very first forges of nothos battle report incoming maybe hopefully before christmas that'd be cool Thank you as always for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure having this discussion with you guys. Um, and we hope that you got something out of it. We hope that we answered more of your Instagram answers about character death, high fatality games. Uh, obviously, we could talk about these for hours. The conversation has not ended, nor will it ever. And if you want to become a part of it, then again, head over to the Discord and join in there where we are always talking about this kind of thing and much, much more. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Stay alive and stay hydrated.